0: Well, welcome to all the dads, uh, welcome to everybody, but special greetings to the dads today. Uh, I know Father's Day can be a great day for you, it can be a hard day for some. Uh, God the Father is a perfect Father, we can lean into Him for an example or uh, lean into Him just because He's a great Father. So whatever, wherever you find yourself, we're glad you're here. So uh, about 15 years ago, I got invited to play in a golf tournament with, with uh, three guys. I didn't, know, uh, I didn't know them well, and three things really stand out in my mind from that day. So the first was, there was a guy, and, uh, and he had, um, well, his setup for, for hitting the ball was, uh, it was something else. And he, he went through it. Uh, a bunch and it was almost, uh, uh, it was almost unbelievable that he would he would do this and then he would do this and then and then he would come back here and he would line it up again and he'd get in here. And then a- as if this were uh, I-, I-, I was guessing I was being punked about this time because in his backswing, about right here, he actually jumped. And uh, and hit the ball. And I remember the second shot that he took. So the first shot on the first tee, I sort of watched that. The second shot, I'm watching him go through this whole routine again. And I make eye contact with the other two guys. I look up at them, and they're both looking at me. They're not looking at him. And it's like they're saying, yes. Every shot, get ready for it. This is what is going to happen. And I was... I was a little surprised. Second thing that I remember about that golf outing was the lecture that this guy gave us after the marshal came by and told us that we had to pick up our pace of play. And uh, after the marshal left, it was this guy's club, and he says, guys, you're making me look bad. You really have to pick up the pace. And I remember thinking, okay, now y- you clearly are taking three times as long as the three of us put together. And, and then it, it occurred to me He didn't see it, right? He was clueless about his whole approach to golf. He had no idea that he was taking 90 seconds every time he hit the ball. And then the third thing that struck me uh, a couple holes later was a real sinking feeling I got. when It suddenly dawned on me, if he could be that clueless about some aspect of his life, what am I clueless about in my life? Where am I the the victim of people sort of, you know, making eye contact with each other like, really? Did he just do that? Did he just say that? Oh my goodness, that's who he is. So this is the second week of this series called Unstuck. The premise is that we are expected to keep getting better. That Jesus is the model, he's the ideal, and that, uh, and that after we come to faith, there's a whole sanctification process that we want to engage in and to move forward to become more like him. That this is a win. Becoming more like Jesus, having more fruit of the spirit, love and joy and patience and kindness and self-control. This is a win. Life works better when we get better. Being stuck is no fun. Better is better, but... The default mode for us is to be stuck. It's to stop growing. And so we have to be very proactive about deciding we're going to continue to move down the path. So last week, uh, we went to Jeremiah chapter 17, and I, uh, we looked at this passage in which Jeremiah argues that the first way we get stuck, the, the major way we get off to a bad start, is that we put our roots down uh, into the wrong thing. Right, Roots are what anchor us, they're what nurture us, and in that, uh, in that analogy, uh, the, the writer, Jeremiah, suggests that uh, we are putting our roots down like a little shrew bush in the desert that, that is, is not very majestic. And, and we're putting our roots down into unbelief as opposed to putting our roots down in God, who is going to nurture us and, and, and be, we become like the majestic tree along the side of a stream. So, uh, we looked at that and I said, look, th- there's all kinds of discussions in the Bible about ways we get stuck. In, in modern parlance, we talk about people who are stuck because of addictions or because of, uh, because of, of uh, laziness or because of injustice, someone's pushing them down or because of lack of focus, a lack of clarity about what, it, what the good life is supposed to be like. The Bible groups all of these things under a rubric of sin. Which is not a small little term, it's not a wooden clunky sort of black and white issue. It's a very complicated, big, nuanced uh, idea that we find developed with lots of different words, lots of different parables, lots of different illustrations. And so I want to move to a second one now. I want to take us uh, to, to the idea that one of the reasons we're stuck is because we don't see ourselves clearly. One of the things that holds us back is self-deceit. When the truth about our behavior is unpleasant at a a certain level, we simply lie to ourselves. We simply simply deny it. If it's too hot to handle, then we don't handle it. If If our actions are not as good as we think they ought to be, or if they're worse than we can imagine... We somehow deny, we shift the blame, we justify, we rationalize, as opposed to owning what's going on in our own life. And uh, a, a great illustration of this comes to us uh, with King Saul, who is uh, who's got this account reported in First Samuel chapter fifteen. So, if you have a Bible and you want to follow along, you can turn to First Samuel fifteen. And Saul is the first king of Israel. So the whole Israel, nation of Israel, the Jewish people get selected in Genesis chapter 12. When God goes to Abraham, promises him land and descendants. He gets the land right away. The descendants come later with Isaac. Then we follow the, the whole patriarchs, Isaac to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. They grow. They start to prosper. Then there's a famine in the land, and so they go to Egypt. They're in Egypt for a while before they fall into slavery. They're slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then God hears their cry, he sends a liberator. This is Moses. This is the ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, all that. They head out. They're supposed to head back to the promised land. But they do not believe God can secure the promised land for them. So they they uh, they choose not to enter it. And so they're going to spend 40 years wandering around in the desert. They die. Most of them die uh, of that generation. And then a new generation comes up. Moses passes away. Joshua becomes the the leader. He leads them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. But they exist. This would be the time of the judges. They exist not as a nation but as 12 tribes sort of uh, occasionally acting together. But generally on their own. Every man did what was right in his own eyes during the period of the judges. So at that point. They say, we need a king. We want a king. We want to be like everybody else. They have a king. We need a king. Samuel the prophet says, you have a king. King is God. They said, we want a regular king, a real king. And Samuel says, a king is going to raise taxes. A king is going to conscript your men to fight in battles, your young boys to fight in battles. You don't want a king. They go, we want a king. So finally God says, Samuel, give them a king. And they get Saul. Tall, dark, and handsome, exactly what they were looking for, Saul. And Saul will prove to be uh, a disappointment. And so we are picking up with what's going on with Saul after he makes um, the, the biggest mistake, sort of the beginning of the end for him. God had said to Saul, okay, I want you to take the army and to go punish the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a particularly cruel people, but God gives very specific instructions. You are not going to do to the Amalekites what the Amalekites have been doing to everybody else. You are not going there uh, to to engage in some act of colonialism or imperialism. You are going there as my messenger. You are going to exercise justice. So there is to be no profit from this war. You are not to plunder. You are to take nothing, 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 nothing. Zip, zilch, nada. You are not to take a single thing from the Amalekites. And Saul says, get it. I got it. I'm on it. Uh, And so Saul then goes off to battle against the Amalekites. The, The Jews are successful in defeating the Amalekites. And then Saul and his army plunder the Amalekites and they take all the best stuff. And so we are reading now uh, as we pick up at that point. First Samuel chapter 15, beginning with verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel the prophet. Uh, God said, I repent that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and he has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told uh, Samuel where Saul was. Saul had come to Carmel. He had built some monuments for himself. Verse 13, Samuel uh, came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. So Samuel goes to get Saul because Saul has been disobedient. God has said this to him. He finds Saul excited to see him. Saul thinks, I've done the right thing. God sent me to defeat the Amalekites. I defeated the Amalekites, right Everything else he is forgotten or denied, so he 's happy and then, in a very famous line, 1 Samuel fifteen verse fourteen, Samuel said, "What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear okay so uh, the, the the wealth of this country at this time was in the cattle was in the sheep that they had and 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 Saul has taken the best. So the first thing that Saul did was deny that anything was wrong. We're about to see number two, which is to blame. Saul said, they have brought them. So not me. He's the king. He's the general. He's in charge. But, but when Samuel says, what's with all the sheep? He goes, oh, yeah, they, the soldiers, they have brought them. Not me. I'm not responsible. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared, and now we get the third thing, justification, rationalization. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Uh, and the rest they have utterly destroyed. So uh, it's going to go on. Uh, Saul, is, or Samuel's going to say to Saul, Saul, you're done. Uh, God is moving on. Saul is going to protest. He says, I did just what I was supposed to do. And then he's going to say, it's them. They're the ones that did the wrong thing. And then he's going to say, but they only kept it. We only kept it so that we could sacrifice to the Lord. So denial, blame, rationalization. And, um, and they'll go back and forth. Eventually, eventually, Samuel will be able to persuade Saul that what he's done was wrong. And Saul will admit it. But this is the beginning of the end for Saul. So here's the point. Tragically, we're a lot like Saul. We tend to deny things that we don't, unpleasant truths about ourselves, not see them. We tend to blame other people for the things that go wrong. And we tend to justify our actions uh, by, in various ways. And uh, this pattern uh, is going to keep us stuck. So in order to get better... We have to sort of come to grips, take an honest look, and realize who I am and what I'm doing. And um, it, this is this is much harder than we might think. So, uh, in professional psychology, or excuse me, in professional philosophy journals, starting in the '60s, there was a, a discussion about whether or not it's possible for us to know something and to not know it at the same time. But basically, the philosophers were just late to the discussion because starting back in the early 20th century with Freud and others, there was all this discussion by psychologists about how we do exactly that. How uh, using defense mechanisms, repression, denial, uh, cognitive dissonance, all these terms to describe how we can sort of block knowing the truth, unpleasant facts. If something is too unpleasant... If it doesn't comport with who we want to think we are, then we find some way to not know it. So if we're going to get better, we sort of have to understand what we're doing. So let's take these one at a time. Denial. So Saul denies. He he denies the reality that he has been profoundly disobedient to what God had very specifically said that he was supposed to do. Uh, Denial is, is a very common uh, approach for us, and uh, and 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 when it comes out, it 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 can actually be at different levels. Some denial is extreme. When I was in uh, following the stroke, when I was in neuro ICU for the first few days, I kept wanting people to help me leave because I didn't think anything was wrong. So, I I I not only can't walk. I can't stand, I can't sit up, and I'm lying in bed holding on to the bed rails because I can't, I'm worried I'm going to fall out of bed because everything is so upside down. So, uh, yeah, I'm in bad shape, but I, none of that seems to matter. I just keep saying, you know, look, I'm fine, I'm fine. If people will just help me get out of here, right, you know, divert the doctors and the nurses and then we'll just walk out of here. Uh, so sometimes there's profound denial. And from time to time, we interact with someone who has uh, clearly a mental illness at the level at which their perception of reality and reality are only barely overlapping, right? Got a Venn diagram of this. So one definition of mental health is how much overlap there is between who I think I am and who I actually am. And if there's not a whole lot of overlap, at some point we say this is mental illness. Now, if I say to you, I'm a 56-year-old uh, with a great family and a bad sense of balance. You go, okay, yeah, that sounds right. If I say to you, I- I'm actually just 30, and I'm faster than Usain Bolt, I just I- I try and keep it a secret, right? Now, at that point, you have two choices. You can Since it's clearly not true, I'm not 30, and I'm not faster than Usain Bolt. So now you can say, well, you're guilty of lying. You've got a moral issue. Or you believe it's true, but you are there is such a, a there is such disparity between reality and, and mental illness, or reality and your perception that you are mentally ill. So we're not talking about either of those. We're not talking about people who know the truth and lie because they're going to get out of trouble or make a buck or whatever. And we're not talking about people who are mentally ill. But there is a there is a a, a third category. So mental. Well-being is when our perceived perception—I think we got another Venn diagram—when when our perception of who we are and who we are is perfectly overlapped. That's not where we tend to spend our time. We tend to spend our time in the third diagram, which is where there is some disparity there. And, and there is just—we tend not to believe the bad things about ourselves. We tend to believe better than we are. And so we deny— we, we didn't get beat by that team, right? The refs stole the game, right? Uh, I didn't do a bad job on that exam, right? The teacher's an idiot, and it was an unfair set of questions, right? I mean, we can just, we can just head down uh, a path. There are so many different ways we can justify our own behavior. Last week, I talked about uh, a young woman, Lauren, who's in her mid-20s and who blames uh, she blames boomers for having all the good jobs and not getting out of the way. She blames her professors for talking into a major that has not led to a good job. And she blames her parents for the fact that her car's bad, right? So she's, a, she's forever a victim. She does not own the responsibility for the decisions that she has made at any point. Right? She is denying that the problems that she's facing are problems that she has created. Uh, you know, When I was a consultant, I I remember learning that denial is not just something that an individual does. Sometimes whole companies do it or whole teams do it. So I I was working with a company that had about 100 employees. They had a process that took about three months. And after studying the process, I came back and said, I have found someone that does essentially the same thing you're doing. They do it in eight days. So this is good news, right? We can save all this time. Well, um, let's just say it was not received as good news, right? First, um, they denied forever, and then they attacked me, right? And and I remember being so confused because I'm looking. I'm, I'm listening to them saying it's not the same thing, and I'm going, but it is the same thing, right? It took weeks to persuade them that that, that this was the same process. And eventually they got there, and they didn't, we didn't get down to eight days. We got to 12 days, but we cut from three months to 12 days. But there was this... Strong ability to deny reality because it was too threatening. Wow, we've been doing it wrong. Uh, I have had, as I'm sure you have, uh, moments that were really unpleasant when sort of the truth suddenly clicked in. And you, you get information about yourself that is now undeniable. Sometimes it comes by uh, a video, right? You see yourself on video and you go, Really? That's what my golf swing looks like. Really? Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. It could be a picture. It could be, it could be a 360 assessment at work. And you go, really? Everybody is saying the same thing. They're all wrong, of course, but everybody is saying the same thing. And, and you have to go, okay, this is true. Perhaps the biggest for me came when I was 45. I was diagnosed as having ADHD. And and I say, uh, It's not entirely true because uh, my wife, among others, would have made that diagnosis about twenty years earlier than that. But uh, it would occasionally come up that I had this challenge, this issue, and it made me mad. And so, at one point, I said, "You know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to find an expert. Go to this expert, and and I'm going to have them make an assessment." And so, I found this person. I went and I said, "I'm here because my wife thinks that I have ADHD." And he said, well, I actually, I've, I've been to your church. You, you, I, I, you don't have ADHD. I go, right. So write that on a slip of paper so I can take that home and show that to her. And he said, I, my impression of you is that you probably spend a lot of time like sitting in a library reading and studying. I go, yeah, that's, that's a big part of what I do. And he says, yeah, you don't have ADHD. And I said, right. So Put it on the piece of paper so that I can take that home. In Latin would be even better; it would sound more official. So we keep talking, and he said, "Well, just just humor me, answer a few questions." And so the, we start on this list of questions, and I can tell at some point that he's like, "Huh?" So you know, I, I can think, "Okay, this is trending a little bit different direction than I thought." And he comes back and he says, "So, so." I talked about my schedule. He goes, so on Tuesdays, you go to a library, and you just sit at a desk and work on a sermon. I said, yes. He goes, for how many hours? I go, you know, five, six hours. He goes, you, you do not have ADHD. I go, right, the, the slip of paper. Write it on the slip of paper. And he says, so you're just sitting at, working on a sermon. I go, well, I'm, I'm working on three or four sermons. I tend to do that at the end. He goes, three or four sermons. I go, yeah, it's just easier. It's sort of the way my mind works. He goes, oh, okay. He goes, but you're sitting there. He goes, you don't get up. I go, oh, well, well, I get up because uh, I, I I like to walk around when I'm thinking. Goes, oh, okay, yeah. So now suddenly, he says, let's take another test. So it's a 20-minute test on a computer. There's a screen. When the letter X appears, you hit the space bar. That's the test. 20 minutes, several million people have taken this test. They've got it calibrated down to fractions of a second that it takes you to respond, how quick you are at the beginning and the end. And for for a couple of minutes, the screen may be blank, and then you'll have a rapid fire of letters, and then it, and then it, you know, it's just very, very random, and you're just, you just have to focus on the task at hand. So he said, "I'll be back in about 25 minutes. It takes 20 minutes to, uh, to take it, and then I got to walk down the hall. I'll get your, I'll, I'll instantly get your report, uh, your, your assessment." So he comes back 25 minutes later, and he says, "So how do you think you did?" I said, "You know, it was." boring oh my goodness it was hard to stay focused because it's so boring and there's all these books in this room I go but you know so I'm sure I missed a few he goes well he says you scored in uh the first percentile I said okay now what I heard speaking of denial what I heard was I scored in the top percentile so he said does that surprise you and I said well a little bit but you know whatever no big deal and he said um you're not, you're not sort of concerned by that? I go, I, I, you know, it's no big deal. And he said, okay. Well, he says, because I'm required now by law to tell you that you cannot be, and he starts down this list, you can't be an air traffic controller. You can't, you know, he starts saying all these things that I can't do. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I said, when you say I'm in the first percentile, you mean the top percentile or the bottom percentile? He goes, no, no the first top percentile would be the 99th percentile. He you're in the first percentile. Oh, I go so ninety nine people in a chimpanzee taking this test he says it's going to be close between you and the chimp on this uh, on this exam. I said, Wow, well, that is uh a little unnerving, and that's a little frustrating and how is it that I have not ever been able to see this right so I called Sherry on the way home and said, yeah, okay, well, here we are. Um, and then I, I, in the next few days, I talked to some friends, and I'd call them, and I'd say, hey, I just flunked an ADHD test, like, by a lot. And uh, does that surprise you? And they're like, no, no, it doesn't surprise me. I go, what do you mean it did not surprise you? Well, I've, I've sort of known this for a long time. How come everybody seems to have known this but me, right? How is it that I'm the last to figure this out? So here's the question. What don't you see about yourself? What do other people know to be true about you that you have not admitted to yourself yet? Secondly, first is denial. Second is blame. So Saul says, they, right? What's the bleeding of sheep that I hear? Well, they did this. This is not an original response, by the way. You go back to the Genesis, and God asks Adam, Did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And his response is, The woman you gave me, gave me this, right? So it is it is shift the blame. God, this is your fault or her fault. I am I am innocent. So it's just Worth noting, we live in a time of significant political tension, and there's lots of global and national and statewide problems. Have you heard anyone take credit for the problems? It sort of doesn't matter what the problem is. You can be certain that people are going to find a way to blame the other side, whatever it is. Right, Whatever the data is, it doesn't matter. And I believe in many cases, it is a sincere belief that it's the other side that is to blame. Whatever they did, it is their fault. So uh, this past uh, couple weeks ago, Tiger Woods was um, arrested uh, for a DUI and uh, had his mug shot in the paper. And... Uh, he said that this was not uh, not a problem with alcohol. That he was he was on prescription pain meds, and no one had, had coached him adequately about the interaction of pain meds with other things. And so, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps that's true. I don't want to pick on Tiger. When Tiger had his crash ten years ago, I preached the sermon at Men's Fraternity, say saying, "This is how we're all like Tiger Woods," right. Uh, we didn't have uh, $500 million of money thrown at us when we were 25. We haven't had all these, all these opportunities, all these people, all these women. Right? That has not been our experience. Who knows how we would have handled those kind of challenges. Uh, so I don't want to pick on Tiger. But I am suspicious of the response because I can come up with about a half dozen of my friends or acquaintances that I know who were arrested for DUIs. And only one of them ever admitted it. Right? So what I heard from the others was, well, uh, the police officer was a jerk. Uh, you know, it was my wife's fault. I was driving her car and the taillight was out and I told her to get it fixed. And I got pulled over for the taillight and that's that's how this happened. It was a hot day and I'd worked out extra long so I was dehydrated. Or the breathalyzer, I'm sure, was wrong. Right. Whatever it was, it was just like beyond their ability to say, apparently, I have a drinking problem. Right? Apparently, I drank too much, which is shocking to me. Like, Because clearly, there was a, I, I brew a breathalyzer and it was uh, over 0.8. So clearly, I have a problem. And I, I, I didn't get it. I didn't know. One out of the, the half dozen that I know. It's just so hard for us to own our own junk. Which leads to the third thing that we do, which is to rationalize or to justify. And so, uh, we see this uh, in in Saul's case. Uh, he says, "Look, the um, we we did take all the all this cattle and all the all these oxen and all these sheep, but we're gonna we're gonna sacrifice it to the Lord." Right now, it's not what we're supposed to do, but we're gonna we're gonna make this sacrifice. So there have been lots. I'm confident lots of donations to churches and nonprofits by people who are trying to justify that the money that they have have come into was acquired in less than uh, completely moral ways. So maybe it was legal. I've heard that. What I'm doing is legal, right? But it's in the gray area. But it's legal. Okay. Sounds like you gotta. Guilty conscience there. And I'm giving money to, you know, I'm giving money here, right? So you hear people say, well, look, so what I'm doing is maybe questionable, but everybody does it in my industry. Everybody does it, right? And it's not like I'm Bernie Madoff, right? And then I suspect uh, Bernie Madoff says, well, look, yeah, so what I'm doing is um, maybe eventually not going to work, but it's not like I'm killing anybody. And the, the mafia hitman is probably saying, uh, I'm not Hitler, right? I mean, you know, we can all find a way to say, we can all find a way to rationalize our behavior, blame or deny blame and justify. So here's the way forward. Uh, I've said uh, about this series that I'm, I'm not long on solutions. In this series, we're trying to to dig deep. We're trying to see how the Bible suggests that sin can be complicated and nuanced so we can do a, a, a more accurate, more complete self-assessment, believing that, that you got to have a good diagnosis before you know what the cure is. So we're, we're drilling down on the diagnosis, but there's a couple things that just clearly need to be said here uh, as, as we bring things to an end. First of all, we need to ask for the Holy Spirit's help in this. Right? We need to pray and say, Spirit of God, shine, shine a light into the dark corners of my heart. Help me to see myself more accurately. Secondly, we really need friends. Right? We really need community. If we can't see it, we've got to rely on other people who see it to tell us. And that means that we're probably going to have to invite that kind of feedback. Where, what are my blind spots? What are my blind spots? Would you please think about that for a while and then tell me what my blind spots are? For 15 years uh, with a couple of guys, I've done a, an exercise once a year or so. We call it two plus one. Two affirmations and a challenge. So you start, we'll say Jeff and Randy. So Jeff is is on on the target first of all. So I'm going to offer a ch- uh, an affirmation to Jeff. Jeff, I really appreci- appreciate this about you. Jeff, here's my challenge for you. I think you got to work on this. And then, Jeff, here's another thing that I appreciate. And then Randy looks at Jeff and says, Jeff, this is something I appreciate. Jeff, this is something you need to work on. Jeff, I, so we, we do this. It takes, it, it takes hours to sort of fully unpack all this. But we've done it. So I called one of the guys last week. And I said, um, so for the last two times we've done this, right, we have said the same thing. Both of us have said the same thing to you as the challenge area. What was the challenge area, right? And he didn't know. And and I I, I don't believe he said something else. And I said, uh, well, you need to work on that too. But that is not actually what we said. Uh, I and I said, remember. When we said it, you said, I hear this all the time. I heard this from my wife all the time. And I go, but, but somehow you still can't own this, right? Isn't that interesting? Because this wasn't, this isn't done in a threatening way. This isn't done in a way to beat someone up. This is like, I want to know. I want to know. But, but it's hard. That's still the process. We're going to have to go to friends. And then third, we have to understand grace. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. If we operate out of a mindset that says, I've got to be good. I've got to be good enough or God isn't going to love me. I've got to be good or I don't have worth. Then then we are wired to try and tell ourselves we're doing better than we are. If we say, no, I actually am more profoundly broken than I ever dared realize. But God's love is bigger than that. right? And that's the good news. I just keep, we preach the gospel to ourselves by grace we've been saved. God is a good, good father. He's a loving father. He loves me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. We have to keep going over and over the gospel to ourselves. It's not a one-time decision. It is an ongoing decision to lean into the grace of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we do not want to be stuck Uh, we want to see ourselves clearly that's a a scary thing a a threatening thing we get that it's the right thing but it's a hard thing and so i pray for um, i pray for the kind of uh, community support and psychic strength to face the truth and to understand the truth spirit of god shine a light in the dark corners of our heart. Help us to see ourselves uh, in light of truth. Help us to become more like Christ. Help us to not be stuck. We pray this in Jesus' name.